name is Daniel Gershberg, and I would love to welcome you to the I'm the Law podcast, the latest edition of it. I got a great guest today by the name of Preston Clark. Uh, he's nice enough to join me. We're going to be talking legal tech uh, and, and perhaps talking about some contrarian positions with regards to that and why lawyers perhaps shouldn't worry um, about what's going on in this, uh, this type of sort of talking about the commoditization of law. Um, and Preston, again, has been nice enough to join me on this. So Preston, I'll, I'll let you uh, intro yourself because I'm sure you'll do a much better job of it than I will. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on today. Uh, yeah, my name is Preston Clark. I, uh, I used to be in-house legal counsel for the University of Miami, so um, I, I did my hard time. Granted, it was only for a couple of years practicing law and then uh, transitioned into uh, what I refer to as business services, B2B, uh, sales, marketing, uh, and that's where I've been living for the past uh, five years, first in New York and now in uh, the tech hub of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. So that, that's a bit about me. I also maintain a legal blog uh, called thelawinsider.com, and I also, uh, through, through, uh, through some free time over the last few years, have developed a contract database of, of a pretty substantial size. We have about half a million contracts available at lawinsider.com. So um, keeping my hands busy and, and, uh, and a lot of fun. But uh, that's that's the quick intro for me. So I want to just uh, just a quick note on your background because I noticed that, uh, and I want to sort of get your your take on how you took the journey from where you were over to law school. I noticed that you were in the Peace Corps for some time. Is that right? I was. Yeah, I was. Uh, I lived in El Salvador for just over two years. That's amazing. And and so how does that? I mean, how did you decide on the Peace Corps? And then, almost more importantly, beyond that, how do you go from Peace Corps to law school? Yeah, I, there wasn't much of a strategy to be perfectly <laughs> frank with you. I think when, like many students that, that graduate undergrad with a liberal arts degree, I mean, I was, you know, I, my major was philosophy, and and so I certainly didn't have a lot of plans in terms of what was going to come next as it related to getting a, a real job. Sure. And so the idea was, I was still hungry. I wanted an adventure. I wanted to do something that was meaningful. And the Peace Corps seemed like a good opportunity. Uh, what's interesting about the Peace Corps is that they don't actually let you select where you go, where you end up. And so I, I waited for about nine months for my for my placement, uh, as we call it. And and I got a phone call one day that said I was going to go to El Salvador. And I quick pulled up a map, and and that's that's where I landed. And and so the transition from that into into law, it was sort of like, you know, at some point living on a volcano with no running water for two years, you start <laughs> to get a pretty good idea that uh, economic mobility is good and having a job is good and opportunity, the opportunities that we have in, in North America, to be quite frank, are tremendous and that we should embrace those. And so law school at the time, you know, pre-economic meltdown, uh, seemed like a really good idea, and and I'm thankful for my education. But that's you know there wasn't a ton of strategy going in, but I knew that after the Peace Corps, I was ready to to get a graduate degree, and, and law seemed to to be a good fit for me. And so you you go to law school. Uh, do you enjoy law school while you're in there? Or is it kind of because I I mean I went when I went it was it was fine. Um, I was never sort of in love with it. Uh, it was a really good way to sort of learn to argue in a particular way, but it was never like I, I never felt it was a calling for me per se. Um, yeah, I, I love it. What you just said, I'm gonna I'm gonna reuse that forevermore. Law school was fine. Yeah, yeah that's exactly <laughs> it was, what it was. You, so you it, had the same sort of experience. Yeah. So it it was clear to me though going through it that that I was a business guy. Like it was clear to me that 
like the types of law that interested me were immigration and family law, not because those topics necessarily interested me, although immigration certainly did, but because I saw opportunities for flat fill, flat fee billing. I saw more opportunity to to run a really tight business where a lot of revenue could be coming in uh, on on using leveraging. Um, leveraging uh, paralegals and, and, and other uh, service providers. It just that, that's what fascinated me much more than, than SCOTUS decisions and, and you know, civil procedure, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of an important distinction as I, as I speak to my colleagues more and more. So there's, and I, I always discuss this when I spoke to law students, and, and I, I'd love to get your take on this. There's this sort of, there's a distinction to be made between people that are in law school that really just love the law and all they want to do is argue before a judge um, and, and just want to get into the substantive portion of that. The, I really call them the real lawyers because there's there's a difference to me. And those like myself that, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of solo practitioners growing up in Brooklyn um, and I knew them and I, 90%, I shouldn't say 90, probably 80% of what they did was trying to figure out whether or not they were profitable, seeing if a marketing worked for them in a particular way, seeing how they dealt with clients, uh, making sure they followed up, the business end of it. Um, and so you, you sort of have this, I don't want to call it a dichotomy, but in law school I saw that there was a lot of people that were interested in the business of law, and then there were some that could you know could care less about the business of it, they just wanted to practice law itself. Did you see the same thing when you were in law school? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So the sort of the ivory tower, the intellectual endeavor right. of law school. Yeah. And and to be quite frank, it wasn't my strong suit. I mean, it's easy for me to stand here and say, yeah, I picked business, but the fact is, I, I wasn't going to get an A in right. civil procedure. It just wasn't going to happen. And so I, uh, yes, I agree with that. There's those two compo- those two components, and I picked the one that was most or best suited to me. So you leave law school and, and you worked uh, as an assistant general counsel with the University of Miami for, for a period of time? Yeah, did that for a couple of years. Very thankful. Had an amazing opportunity there. Eileen Ogalde, who's, who's the head uh, GC over there, was, you know, was very um, gracious to give me that opportunity coming right out of law school. They had never hired um, you know, a, a, a recent grad before. So it was a big deal. Um, really got me off the ground in terms of, you know, at a time when the economy was very bad, and, right. and especially in South Florida. And and I did it for a couple of years, and, and it really galvanized for me because I had an opportunity to be exposed to business. I mean, I'm, I'm doing contract negotiations for the university, and, and I'm fascinated by the business aspect. And so um, it, was, it was a hard decision, one that my family wasn't too excited about uh, after all the work <laughs> and, and money I had put into law school that, that I would jump ship on it. But... Uh, but looking back, it was you know very very happy with the decision I made to leave. Talk to me about that for a second, because th- those are sort of the circumstances that that I'm fascinated with. Specifically, you know, I speak to so many attorneys that say, you know, I, I would do something else, but what the hell else can I possibly do, right? And and behind that is c- to a certain extent the fear of leaving law behind, which is something you did after um, University of Miami. It looks like I mean you went r- sort of right into business and. What's that decision like, and how do you finally push through any doubts that you have? Essentially, the doubts of I just spent three years of my life studying, spent upwards of over a hundred thousand dollars, likely in student loans, to get there, and now I'm just going to say, well, I want to go into business, even though it's your calling, right? Even though it's something you want to do. So many people are scared of doing that. So, what pushed you over the edge? With, by the way, your family pressuring you perhaps not to do it during that time. Yeah. Um 
so I, as, as the as the the saying goes, you know, lawyers are risk averse by nature, right? right. Or that that's what the perception is, and so I think it is difficult because we go into law, many of us, because it it provides a level of security. I think for me, this one is difficult for me to give advice or recommendations on because I think that it was something that was very much innate in me. Like I just had to do it, and and so I, I don't know how I would advise someone who's on the fence about it because it's almost like if someone asks me about it, if someone said, hey, Preston, I'm thinking about leaving the practice, I'd almost say if you're thinking about it and you're asking me about it, you're probably not going to do it. So sure, let's sure. we can talk about it. But, you know, because I didn't, I certainly didn't counsel with anyone on it, though I probably should have. I just, it was like, I'm leaving um, yeah. and I'm going to jump into something. And and what I jumped into is not glamorous. I mean, I jumped into sales, right? I mean, I'm, I go from assistant general counsel to B2B sales guy in, in Manhattan. I mean, it was not, it was not particularly glamorous, but... Um, but you had no choice. Can I say that? Like, in other words, inside you, you essentially had no choice. You said, I have to do this or... The, the, there's no other option for me. I have to leave. I have to start doing this stuff. Right, right. But but unlike a decision, this is where I'd like to distinguish it a little bit. It's like me, you know, it's like my son coming to me and saying, hey, dad, I want to be a rock star and I don't have a choice. It's like, okay, that that's fair. So we'll, we'll help you pursue that. And, and if it doesn't work out, well, let's put the pieces in place for there to be a fallback. For me, it was, I looked at the money I was making. It, it was more of a pragmatic decision. It wasn't just an emotional one. It wasn't right, just right. like, I need to pursue my my calling as a human being it was it was hey there's not enough money in law for me and i hate to be that blunt about it but i have all this ambition and i i want to work 20 hours a day 7 days a week i want all of that but i don't want to have to fulfill the product that i'm selling i don't want to have to sell myself in the form of a billable hour in order for this thing to work because i think that there's a better way and and so that's sort of it it almost like it was part emotional and part what the spreadsheet was telling me in terms of um, where I could find the most success. So I think that's that's super important also um, in terms of you know what you're talking about, about the money that you actually earn. I mean, when I went to law school, it was, you know, people thought that they were going to make $100,000 out of the gate. I mean, there was no basis for it whatsoever. Um, but they said, well, you know, the, the common perception is that, well, go to, go to law school, become an attorney so you can make money. In reality... There's a ton of people. I would say the majority of the people aren't really making good money. Um, and if they are, they still have all of this student loan debt that they have to sort of service. So it's it's having one hand tied behind your back. I think it's I think it's absolutely crucial that you're blunt and, and, and I applaud you for it um, about the money itself because that's such a huge you know, part of it um, is that you want to be able to make a living even though you're going to be working these crazy, crazy hours. And the reality is you know, if you're coming out of a school that's a tier three, tier two school, uh, and you're middle of the road at that school, you're likely not going to be making six figures, right? You're you're not, um, and yeah. so that's kind of crucial to point out um, when people do this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's it's just a different life. Yeah, really crucial to to point out, and uh, <laughs> yeah, because that was. You know, at University of Miami School of Law, I think it's ranked. I'm not, I'm not sure where it is now. Maybe in the 60s. Right. And I certainly graduated middle of the middle of the pack. But hey, you know, I was SBA president. I got to sit on the board of trustees nice. for a year. You know, I got all of these perks, and I was like, hey, listen, I'm a good salesman. Nice. I got, I'm good at. I can, I can get people and I to to do things. I can influence people. That seems like where my where my my career should should take me. 
so you leave that career essentially and tell me how you get sort of walk me through how you get to um to be surrounded by legal tech maybe the the beginnings of law insider i mean take take me through that sure yeah so i i think that that there was some there was some anxiety around abandoning the profession and so i think it was a uh, it was kind of cathartic or, or or sort of propelled by my anxiety of abandoning uh, my legal education that, that I started the blog in 2010 and about the same time I left the University of Miami general counsel's office and and at the time I didn't it wasn't gonna have a legal tech focus I didn't know what legal tech was I just wanted to create a legal blog and and so you know if you were to look back at my early articles and I you know, wouldn't recommend that you do that uh, they're not good and they're unfocused and they're about all kinds of things that, that don't matter and they don't even matter to me, quite frankly, because I, di I didn't ha even have enough expertise at that point to be writing about anything, right? right. I mean, what, what was I look at like like the the plight of the three L? Like what 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 perspective <laughs> was I going to have, right? And so I just kept writing and kept maintaining it, and then as as I got closer and closer to legal tech, developing my own um, contract databasing, you know, a lot of activity around that, really engaging and interviewing with a lot of startups, um, befriended. Uh, the head of business development and sales for Rocket Lawyer, uh, back when they got their first round of funding from Google Ventures, David Bega, just got really entrenched with what was going on, and I thought, now here's this is fascinating to me, right? Because as as you know, we talk about money again. I want to be in the position to do the job that I'm most uniquely suited to do, right? I mean, that that's what we all want to do. We want to develop a certain skill set and then leverage that in a way that that's in the area and in a time and in a place where it holds the most value and carries the most weight. And so as I was getting into B2B and into sales and into marketing, I thought, well, the closer I can stay to legal, the greater influence and the greater leverage I can have because I used to be a general counsel. I used to be, you know, I went to law school. I have a law degree. So that just sort of made sense to me. And then inside of it, I you know, throughout it, I, I just really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed everything that was going on in legal tech. And so that's been a huge focus um, over the past, you know, about 18 months for me. And and the blog, quite frankly, is just a great conversation starter because I can, I've, I've interviewed, you know, everybody. I inter interviewed Rocket Lawyer, Lex Machina, um, Lex Shares, you know, any, any, any tech company that's legal focused that's written about in TechCrunch, I've spoken to and I know the CEO. And, and that's not because I'm a great guy, it's because I give them an opportunity um, to get press coverage, and in, in exchange for that, I get to I get to listen in on on the cool things that they're doing. When you when you started Law Insider, because this is sort of very important for um, um, people, ask me all the time, why'd you start a blog? You know, what was the point of the blog itself? And and I kind of when I started it was essentially because I didn't have the money for SEO, right? I didn't have the money to. to pay to battle my competitors and I said I'm gonna start blogging about questions that clients commonly have hoping that I'll be found higher and it worked for for a, a very long period of time and still does to, to an extent what was the reason you started I mean was there an impetus for it or were you, were you just kind of just like you, you wanted your voice heard or why'd you start it I mean did you expect it to be this big thing that it is now or, or what was sort of the at the inception what were you thinking let me, uh, Daniel, if it's okay, I'm going to answer that question in a slightly different way than yeah. you probably intended me to. So I, I think that inside of that question is the idea that ideally, and this wasn't the case for me, but ideally you start a blog knowing who your target 
audiences, who is going to read it, who it's for. And that sounds like such a simple concept, but it's so hard to grasp when you're getting started. And if you don't fully grasp it, then you end up not knowing what to write about, and then you write about a lot of different things that don't matter. Right. And so if, if you are a DUI attorney in Pittsburgh, then and, and you want to use the blog to try for SEO purposes, then that's all you should care about and that's all you should write about, right? It, it, this isn't a fly fishing blog. This isn't a place for you to post, you know, office party pictures, right? Because that's not what it's for. Like, right, you, right. you're not going to have recurring audience coming in seeing what's, what's hip and cool in the DUI uh, arena in Pittsburgh. You're just not. And so... And so what was hard for me over time, over the last four years, is that for the first couple of years, I didn't know who my audience was. And I thought that it was going to be uh, consumers, except I didn't have a product and I wasn't practicing law. So why would I want consumers reading my blog? It didn't matter. And so legal tech was, was an awesome route for me because that meant lawyers and legal professionals and legal, legal service providers and, and people interested in legal tech we're going to be my audience, and, and that also ties into my expertise. So it, it, I'm not sure if that's answering your question. No, that is, that is, that is okay. absolutely answering the question. I mean, because I think that a lot of people, and look, it's the same thing when I, when I started my own blog, is that you don't, what I saw in sort of the blogosphere, if you will, at the time was, was two types of attorneys that would blog, or really anyone that would blog. But within the, the legal landscape, I, had, I, I saw attorneys that blogged towards other attorneys. So in other words, they would break down the particular case and say why this is relevant for First Amendment issues, whatever it is. And the intended audience was other attorneys. And there's a lot of attorneys that I follow that are, are incredibly successful at that. There is a second sphere um, of attorneys, and again, just within the attorney marketplace that did it specifically geared it towards clients. What, what happens if I get arrested, right, in the DUI? Do I say anything to the police? Um, you know, what happens if, do I keep my car if I file for bankruptcy? Um, and what you would have sometimes in, with other blogs, mine, mine was just as guilty in, in the initial stages, is it's sort of like hodgepodge. Sometimes I'd write about this, other times I'd write about that, and you have no idea who you're just told to blog um, and you don't know who to write to. So I think what, what you just said makes perfect sense in that you have to discover who you're writing for um, in order to sort of write well or, or for it to have some sort of meaning. And I think that the other thing to, to touch upon in terms of what you said for Law Insider, sort of what I'm doing with this podcast is that you're, you're just giving people value without asking anything in return really. Um, you're just being, you're, you're kind of saying, can I hang out for a minute, right? I would really love to learn about what you do and I'd love to promote it in any way that I possibly can. I don't need anything from you. I just kind of want to be part of the conversation. Would that be a right way to sort of describe that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, but again, then I would, I would push the question back onto you and, and I would say us having this conversation, what value, what, what's in it for you? Um, understanding that that you know this will be promoted, this will you know you'll you, you're going to have to spend some time editing this at the end. What's sort of the end game for you, and why do you see value in, in doing this podcast? I I'll tell you why. There's there's two specific reasons. Number one is because I enjoy it. You know, and, and I talked about it in other uh, in other podcasts. I I essentially stopped blogging about bankruptcy and real estate, and I, I've cut it down tremendously because there's only so many things that you can talk about in those two two areas until you literally want to kill yourself. Um, because it's just so horrendously, you've covered every single topic. What I saw with legal tech, you know, and, and I want to get into that actually right after with you, is um, this industry that's really kind of mysterious and, you know, lawyers don't necessarily know what to make of it. I don't think the people within the industry know what to make of it as of yet, although it's it, it's getting bigger and bigger by the day. Um, 
and I wanted to surround myself with those types of people to see what they think is going to happen to law in the next five or ten years out of you know self-interest to me, right? Am I going to be around? Um, are small uh, small law firms going to be around? And again, I exclude criminal defense and, and commercial litigation because I don't know that there's a tech solution to those. I don't think there ever will be, and I hope that there won't be because I think that a lot of it is based on personality. But when you look at wills, when you look at real estate, when you look at bankruptcy, is, is my job going to be automated? Um, and so that's one of the reasons I did the podcast, started it, was because I wanted to immerse myself not only with people that said, eh, screw law, I want to do something different. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to make a dollar out of this, which fascinates me. Um, but beyond that, I wanted to surround myself with people that, that sort of say, well, look, this is where I think this industry is going. Here's what I think you know, lawyers can do to, to help themselves going forward. Yeah, and, and, and another way to say that maybe is to say that you want to be not only a part of the conversation, but you want to be in the middle of the conversation yeah. because that, that keeps you the most relevant. Because if yeah. something big is about to happen, some, something majorly disruptive, and I'm sorry that I hate to use that word, is happening or about to happen, the, the, the more podcasts you do, the more people you talk to, the more you write, the more you read, the better position you're going to be in. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and sort of to get into that legal tech sphere, I mean – Talk to me about it's an. I don't want to say it's an overused word, but it's it's become like it, like that word disrupt. People are saying legal tech over and over again. What is it? Why should lawyers obsess or not obsess over this thing? Can you break this down to me? What specifically is happening in this industry right now? Sure, sure. So I had um, I was at a legal tech brunch a few weeks ago. Uh, here I'm using the word that uh, <laughs> people may be cringing as I say this. Oh, it's a, great. He's having a brunch in San Francisco at legal tech. Like, Shoot, shoot me, right? So um, one of the guys there, his name is uh, Augie Rakow, and he's a startup attorney uh, in San Francisco for Oric. And and we were talking about, you know, is, you know, is legal tech even real? Is it going to go anywhere? You know, there's never really been a major exit um, in terms of acquisition for a legal tech company. And I was like, well, there has and there hasn't, right? Like, wh- what about what about EchoSign? You know, reaching 150 million in revenue and, and selling to Adobe. Right. And you say, well, EchoSign, that's not legal tech. And I was like, really? The 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 platform through which you know tens of thousands of, of contracts are signed and authenticated, um, you know, every month. Uh, I, I would call that legal tech. But but as a lawyer, I wouldn't be concerned about that, right? Right. And, and so the it's 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 so nebulous. But I think that. It's important that we look at all facets of it because there, there's facets that will improve us as lawyers. There, there's, you know, there's Clio, there's my case, there's there's law practice management software solutions out there that are emerging that make um, it easier for a solo to get started, that make it uh, more cost effective. Pangea three. Uh, David Perlow, what he, what he started, and now he's at BNA. But you, you you talk about disruptive technologies that empower law firms, and I think that's where uh, lawyers need to be paying attention. Not because they need to be scared, but because there are things there that can add value to them, and they need to understand that there's a whole there's a whole industry of people um, uh, breaking their backs every day trying to create innovative technology that makes. Uh, a lawyer and a law firm's ability to deliver services and manage their own business better. 
how many of these companies do you think survive? And, that, and so here's my sort of reason for, for asking this. Um, and it's something that, that I've talked about with several people is, you know, and, and I've gone to a couple of these sort of meetups and I've gone to some lunches just to see exactly what, because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I'm interested in the actual field itself to see what the end game is, right? Um, how many of these companies, though, do you see making it out in five, ten years and actually getting bought out? Because I can't figure out. There's a lot of them that uh, that are doing particular things, which I understand that there is probably a need for, or or sort of a declutterization in the legal in the legal marketplace. Like, for instance, you know, I can understand how a company can sort of eat LexisNexis's lunch or Westlaw's lunch and say, look, we're going to deliver these cases to you um, and we're going to let you comment on them and almost turn it into a listserv based on the cases themselves and we're going to let you do it for 50 bucks a month, right? I totally get that. But do you see any of these companies making money and, and do you think they see themselves as making money? I know it sounds almost like a silly question, but are they just doing this because it's the wild, wild west right now and they want to see what works and they're not scared to fail or wh where do you see this going? Got it. Okay, so... That's so, like a twelve-part question I just threw out there. Yeah, so, yeah, know, but, address any of but, but but it's a, it's a good question. So so here's here's the deal. B to C, business to consumer or business to micro business, like a legal zoom or a rocket lawyer, very very difficult. Companies trying to go after that space, law dingo. Um, uh, there's God, there's so many case text. Yep. If you're going B to C, you have your work cut out for you, and and it will remain to be seen who survives in the next five years because most will not survive. Right. And that's because the economics are very difficult. Client retention is very difficult. Client acquisition is very difficult. And and so and and not everything is needed. That the problem is what we're talking about is software typically, and and software as a service. And that is not how legal services are consumed. You don't pay your attorney uh, an ongoing fee for a DUI um, support. You, you, it's, it's a flat fee, right? Right. right. Um, and and you can say, okay, well, but but I'm gonna I'm gonna prepay, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna offset. I'm gonna pay you two thousand dollars a month and get three thousand dollars in value. Okay, but but there's not that many of those out there. Right. And so I think that the B to C is where. Uh, there's there's a lot of risk and a lot of uncertainty, but also where there may be the most innovation and there's there's the most excitement. You know, it's like it's like Facebook is way cooler than than you know Clio, right? Because right. it's something that disrupts how we function as 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 consumers. But where where I'm most fascinated and where I think that there's a ton of room is in B two B. And so let me just dive into that for one second. Sure. sure. So. If, if you have a product, let's say you and I start a business tomorrow and our, our business is a, a law practice management software, we get a really smart engineer on the team, we build it, uh, we figure out the price point is going to be um, $500 a month and uh, you know we have a team of 10 people, uh, a couple customer service people, a couple engineers, uh, a couple sales guys, you know, HR, finance and, and, we, and we go and, and we, we, we go for it. Well, what's interesting is that it actually does, we don't have to sell that many law firms in order for this to be a profitable business. Right. And and because this product is going to be entrenched in how they deliver services, presumably if we do a good job in developing a product, that it's actually there's a lot of room for these guys. The market can be really really fragmented and and there could be a 100 companies like this all doing 
you know, one to two to three to four to five million a year in revenue, recurring revenue, very sticky. And, and then I'd say, this is great. Now, are all those going to exit into $100 million companies or $200 million companies? No, of course not. But I think that, uh, that you're going to see a lot of B2B companies out there succeeding uh, selling to law firms. Do you see that? I mean, as, as an example of a B2B company, would you, in terms of practice manager, are you, are you throwing in Clio to that or Rocket Matter or those types of companies or, or is it yeah. something different? No, yeah, those companies. So, the, so getting to sort of what I wanted to, to ask about that, isn't that essentially not reinventing the wheel to a certain extent? It, it's just complementing what's already there. So Clio is just a really beautifully designed practice management software for attorneys where they can do a variety of things. It's neat, right? It, it fits. It's seamless. It, it gets rid of a lot of headaches that attorneys have. It's a functionality that complements an attorney as opposed to... Um, sort of getting rid of the attorney altogether, right? Well, right, but, but, but this is where the fine line is, right? So you make a good point. You're saying, hey, Preston, that, this isn't significant, right? For what Clio is doing is not disruptive. It's not significant. If anything, it is, it is strengthening the legal profession, not weakening it, and, and certainly not disrupting it. I think it's and facilitating so, it. Facilitating Yeah. Great. Great word. So, so I agree with that, and that's right, but it's still legal tech, and it's still interesting, and it's still really important because it's going to be changing a lot, and it's going to impact how legal services are delivered. Yes. But, but the more interesting conversation is what are the things that will disrupt the legal industry, and, and that, that's hard because what we have to understand is that there can be a disruption that doesn't make money, and that's what that's so important. Like. Like if Rocket Lawyer and LegalZoom are barely profitable, right? They're they're just now turning a profit, you know, after all these years. Right. Well, that's not significant. What's significant is what they've done to you know solo practitioners who would otherwise be doing in corporations and doing you know basic contract review that now are not. Right. Right. But but they've 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 cannibalized the market. They've not. They've not transitioned that revenue. They haven't, you know, it's like it's like ad spend used to be in magazines and now it's online. Right. But it's still there. People are still spending the money. In this case, the money just isn't being spent or, or not as much money is being spent. So I, I don't know. I, I guess the B2C, the B2C is going to be more disruptive in the short term and the disruption may not bring a profit center on the back end, which, which, which is very interesting, right? It's, it's sort of like the Google effect of just the mass commoditization of information is just eroding any intellectual endeavor that's, you know, any consulting type service, you know, whether it's law or HR or whatever it might be that used to drive a lot of revenue, that, that revenue inherently has to reduce because the, the ivory tower where it used to be a hundred feet tall now is only like two feet tall and or, or at least that's the perception so I feel more comfortable doing self-help rather than having to pay you know two hundred or five hundred or thousand dollars an hour right that's that's the the sort of part that that I'm sort of fascinated about I mean the other stuff so just it, from from my own standpoint you know every legal tech company that that uh, I discuss sort of referrals with and how to get clients I think it's fine. I think it's okay. I'm not really, you know, and I'd love to get sort of your take on it and then come back to this because I, I do want to talk about the do-it-yourself type because I think that's going to that's gonna cut down the amount we earn, just bluntly speaking, and perhaps it should um, for a lot of things like incorporations because really what lawyers do with, when it comes to incorporations, for the most part, I'm not talking about, you know, a 10, 12, 15 member LLC that has 
a variety of different issues that, that come with it. Uh, but I'm talking about a mom and pop shop that want to, you know, set up a thing where they design T-shirts online and a lawyer charges them $2,500 to do the LLC. Right. You know, someone comes in, LegalZoom comes in and says, well, we're going to do this for you for $200. You're going to have a really, really difficult conversation with that client to explain exactly where the added value is, uh, where you're charging 10 times uh, what LegalZoom is and what customizations you could possibly implement that would make it worth your while, right? Right. So that's kind of what I want to touch on and sort of get back to if I can. The, the, I want to get your take on the referral sites and that being part of Legal Tech. So I've spoken to a variety of them. I've actually recorded some podcasts with them and they're great guys. Um, I just don't know. I want to see what you think that the future is when it comes to that. Because again, the, the common question that every lawyer has is how do I get clients, right? That's how so many people have made tons of money. It was Yellow Pages before, and then I, I use City Search, and I still use Yelp. Uh, and there's an abundance of platforms. There's SEO guys that constantly email you. And now there's essentially vetting um, that I've seen in the legal tech space where someone will say, well, look, we're going to match you with a client, right? The few that I've, and I've signed up with, full disclosure, I've signed up with a few just to see what they're like. I haven't really been impressed. Um, I want to see where, do you think that there's a need in the marketplace for this? And, and do you see that anyone's actually going to come with something that's that's just going to disrupt the entire marketplace and, and say, well, look, this actually brings in good clients? Or, or is it sort of a losing situation? So just to be clear, we're talking about sort of customer acquisition, right? We're, we're talking about specifically customer acquisition, a lawyer being approached by a legal tech company that says, hey, we have a really much better way for you to get referrals from us uh, and they're qualified leads versus what you saw before. Okay, so so what I've seen over the years, so you know, I've, I've spoken a lot to Kevin Churn, he used to be the president at Total Attorneys and, and they sold leads. Uh, one of my top sales guys, uh, used to be one of the top reps at uh, Nolo, and they used to sell leads to lawyers. Um, and and then you look at what Abo has done, you know, raising sixty-seven million um, as of you know in their fourth round, their D round, excuse me, um, as of I think April of of two thousand fourteen, and they're largely. You know, granted, they're they're not necessarily selling leads; they're selling more marketing solutions. But but their business model is built on the back of of facilitating customer acquisition with with their Avo rating, which which is extremely powerful from SEO and and is is you know very clearly is is a great tool to help get lawyers in front of potential clients in a way that would be very difficult for for an attorney to do on his or her own. So, I think that. The, the customer acquisition model has changed. The phone book is dead, and you know it's a land grab, or, or the land grab probably already happened, but it continues to be one where we're slicing up the different ways that, that we can get in front of, of customers. But I think, I think what's really difficult, and, and I won't ask, ask you to ask names of the companies that you've either spoken to or, or haven't been too pleased with, but I think that when I look at the companies that that decide that they're going to do this, it's just so so difficult to start in a way that isn't just with an organic SEO strategy. Right. And and I can say that from experience. You know, I've built a a contract database that primarily services attorneys, and I have ten thousand registered users, primarily attorneys, on that platform. And I don't think I'm even close. Like I'm probably four or five years away, and I may get killed off by a Google update 
um, before that ever reaches its potential of being able to monetize because I simply don't have the legal traffic or the consumer traffic to make this thing work. So it's the chicken or the egg that's the problem. And so it's, it's going to be companies that figure out how to attract either attorneys in mass or consumers in mass and then you can monetize it. But the ones that start from scratch and say that they're going to do both simultaneously, I think that that's a very daunting task. I think Avo that you bringing up Avo. I think Avo is is smart, and I've had my issues with Avo in terms of their rating system, and I, I've been b very blunt with them in, in terms of that. But I think that they're genius in terms of what they do because they and and this isn't my ideas. I I, I just read an article about the uh, the commoditization of lawyers. I forget the, the the name of the author where he discusses this. Avo makes money not only from the lawyer, but they make money from the consumer, right? With their Avo Advisor software now, which you essentially can speak to a lawyer. The first lawyer who responds, you pay thirty-nine bucks. Um, the client pays thirty-nine bucks and can speak to a lawyer for fifteen minutes. And on top of that, they get the lawyers to to do their work for them to a certain extent in terms of answering questions in forums. And so they're they're a trusted name. You have all these lawyers that are there that are they're rated. Uh, they have a rating system, so clients come in and say, "Oh, this you know this guy or this gal is absolutely amazing. Um, I'm going to contact them." The lawyers see that they they then pay with advertising dollars. It makes fiscal sense that they're you know putting all my my opinions on on the ratings aside it, it's really really good business practice in terms of what they're doing um i just don't see a company or i'm looking for a company it's not that i was disappointed per se you know by my i didn't have large expectations of the companies that i signed up with but you're gonna have to beat an avo or someone like that or, or get the seo traction organic seo traction like like you just mentioned to even be in the conversation and I just don't know that it's there um, for them now. I mean, it could it could very well change, but um, the, it doesn't fascinate me as much as what you mentioned in terms of the do-it-yourself things fascinate me going forward. Yeah. So let me let me just make one comment to, yeah. to close out that that the the customer acquisition type legal tech, and and that is that the the dirty secret in all of this is that. I can be amazing at generating leads for lawyers, but if the lawyer isn't good at closing business, yeah. then I'm still not valuable to him or her. Yep. And so what, what a lot of uh, legal tech startups that are in that space will tell you is that the hardest job is not selling the lawyer. The hardest job is training the lawyer right, because right. It, this is a sales job. And I mean, I'm, I'm a guy who, who builds sales teams and optimizes them and I have rules in place where you know if a lead comes in it has to be called within 60 seconds right, or you're right. not going to get a lead for another week right, right and 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 it's that discipline that you have to take in order to actually make the whole lead purchasing process work and if you don't have that discipline it's not going to work and so I think it could be it could be another five or ten years before the legal market really understands how to even interface with the leads to begin with. So I, I'll, I'll end it there, but I just wanted to, to bring up that piece as well. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think part of it, and, and I discussed this before, I think part of it is that lawyers suck at salespeople sometimes. And perhaps it's not part of the job. Perhaps it's, you know, lawyers don't think of themselves in that way. Perhaps they should. But at the end of the day, some lawyers are great on the phone. Some lawyers will take six hours to respond because they have other things to do or they're busy or whatever it is. And that's, that's a variable that you can't necessarily control um, on the side of a company. You can't and you can train someone that, that uh, to do certain things if it's part of their job, but if a lawyer is sort of set in their ways after 10, 12 years, it's, it's tough to sort of say, well, look, this is the way you have to approach dealing with clients, right? 
Um, and that makes it infinitely more difficult for that company that, that generates leads to have the lawyer close on those. Right. Um, so that becomes an issue. Now, so the do-it-yourself, I just want to quickly touch upon this. Do you see this, like, I mean, where do you see it going? Do you see lawyers going out of practice because of this? Do you see the do-it-yourself market over the next, I don't know, five to ten years essentially allowing people to do their own wills? And so will the wills marketplace is going to go out of business. Again, I'm talking about mom and pops. I'm not talking about $50 million estates, which, you know, you, you have to curate a, a particular way. Yeah, so I, I think... I had a, a really interesting conversation with um, with one of the managing partners of Littler Mendelssohn uh, a couple of years ago about the topic of of where where the money is in law, and obviously Littler sees it in in the employment realm up up high, and they're not as concerned about what's going on with what what Rocket Lawyer, for example, right, is, right. is eroding, but. What they do recognize is that there's value in those leads. There's value in providing that solution because it gives you audience and it gives you brand recognition so that when the time comes, um, if those people ever need more advanced services, you are there. And so I think that in the context of this conversation, we need to at least try to broadly, clearly define those services that will never be commoditized and those which will continue to be commoditized. Sure. And so so you are right. I, I think that the the low end wills, the low end contracts will continue to be um, uh, taken away from from lawyers. I think that that business will never come back. But I think that where it's really hurting them is is that you want your lawyer wants you to use him or her as often as possible. That's why, like the realtor, doesn't mind helping you find that rental property. You know, the NBA star comes in and says, "Hey, I just moved to Miami. I need a rental property because I'm not sure if my contract, you know, with the team is going to hold." And the the realtor is, is ecstatic to do it because they know that when the time comes for that player to buy, if that day ever comes, that's who they're going to use. Right. And so, so that's where I think the biggest risk is. But but I think that that's. You know, unless a Littler Mendelssohn or on the immigration side a Fragment, unless they decide to go down with some sort of automated solution or some easily um, uh, uh, service solution, which in some ways there's too much liability for them to even consider, then they're just going to have to accept that they've 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 lost that, which, as you pointed out, has a much greater impact on the mom and pop uh, law firms out there that that really live and and, and die by by that small business. So I want to discuss those uh, mom and pops and, and specifically those because the the big boys, you know, it's it's like a separate world. My best friend works for Schulte Roth and Zabel. Another one of my buddies works for a very large law firm. What we do, what I do as as a small firm lawyer, and what they do. Even even if we practice the same thing, if we you know we're in transactions, they're two different worlds, right? We we, we don't even know what what we're doing when when it comes to looking at each other's papers, right? So he can do a billion dollar hedge fund deal, but he has no idea how to write up a contract with his contractor that's working on his house, just none. Um, so when it comes to small mom and pops, and that business goes away. How do they survive, or, or realistically, are they existentially, you know, do they have a serious problem? Because the, the way I look at it now is that 
they're eating this revenue away and either there there's gonna have to be a situation in which you can say well look I'm gonna sell you this form for 400 bucks as opposed to two thousand dollars and I'm gonna give you two hours of my time for an additional six hundred dollars let's say um, that's the only way I see them sort of dealing with this because I think otherwise they're they're dead for specific practice areas like wills like simple contracts like incorporations like a bunch of other things they're dead yeah and so so how about this what even like let, let's pretend that it's not dead if you would go to a mom-and-pop law firm and say what does your ideal customer look like would they say uh, our bread and butter is doing one-off wills at 400 bucks a pop that depends yeah okay and, and, and maybe they would so maybe I'm out of line on this but what I suspect is they'd say no that that well that is our bread and butter but it's not our ideal customer our ideal customer is someone who maybe we've done a will for in the past and now they're going to do you know they're 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 doing a, a major uh, real estate transaction or, right. or something else but, but what they're essentially saying is that they still make their money as up market as possible and that's where they want to live and so here we are talking about um, a part of the business that was never really that great for them to begin with as as a standalone although in the aggregate I'm sure it, it, it amounted for a, a large percentage of their overall revenue but even them even they still wanted to go up market they always wanted the larger opportunities it was just more and more difficult for them to get there so I think that what you're really doing is is yes it is it is a departure they, they, they will not they will not see the good days again I, I see it as just that, that heyday is over and there can certainly be land grabs for bankruptcy there, there can be shifts that enable um, that the small law firm to to flourish for a time, but I think as more and more do-it-yourself becomes prevalent and more trusted, uh, that, that business is not coming back. Which, and I think one of the conclusions from that, or at least that I draw from it, and it's something that that I've discussed. So, look, outside of law school, you know, you graduate law school, everything I heard was you can't have a general practice. You just can't. Um, you need to know one or two areas of the law. It's too complex to do otherwise, and that's exactly you know what people hone in on. That's what I did. I started doing bankruptcy and real estate. But in the past year, year and a half, and speaking to everyone that I, I've spoken to in the tech industry and attorneys and everything else, if this area is going to be cannibalized, right? So if the bottom, and, and let's say they want to upsell and, and do the big real estate deals, but the bottom wills deals and the small contracts pay for their secretary or pay for their rent or whatever it is, in my opinion, it's either going to lead to the reemergence of a general practice law firm because that lawyer is going to want to look at that same client, right? So we're, we're looking at that same client that um, goes to a, a broker to get a rental and then, and then purchase from them. That lawyer is going to want to get lifetime value from that client so that if they come in and that will is not there anymore, well, they could still do a real estate deal. And then if there's a personal injury case, they can come in for that. I see... I don't, I don't see a way around the reemergence of either a general practice or the necessity of partnerships, less solos, more small firms, because that person that maybe was doing wills now has to be the rainmaker in the firm and bring in, I don't know, criminal clients or whatever it is for their partner who does criminal defense work. Do you see that as being a byproduct of this? Yeah, and, and the, the first half of that is, is really interesting to me, this notion that um, the lifetime value is is the only true value, and so you need to find not one way to service a client. You need to find ten ways, right. and I and I do see value in that because 
with with all this prevalence of technology, you know, legal tech, you know, every type of tech, you know, outside of the legal space, everything that you read on TechCrunch, everything that's going on in Wired, everything that you read and consume about that's disrupting is very, it's not white glove service, right? I mean, it's like Salesforce.com, you know, right, multi-billion right. dollar publicly traded company, you know, there's not a lot of customer support. And the idea, one of the great differentiators that the tech cannot touch is, if you have a, a you know your attorney who helps you from a general practice standpoint with everything you know the level of service he or she is going to provide to you and you and that comes with a certain level of loyalty where you may say hey listen you know typically of a real estate deal of this size I, you know, I'd probably go up market a bit and find a more expensive attorney. But you know, John has been with us forever. He's 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 he does he's done some free work, done some pro bono for me in the past. Like I have to do this with him, and and I do see, you know, that that's something that is untouchable. But but again, you have to have a broad enough skill set that you can handle enough types of issues uh, to make that even feasible. So. The last thing that, that I want to touch upon uh, today with you, if I can, because we only have a few minutes left, is social media. And I know it's a huge sort of area, but I always ask people what their take on social media for attorneys is. Um, do and, and I'm sort of, let, let's discuss the mom and pops, if you will. Do people misunderstand what this is? So my whole take on this is that social media has never really got me a client. I never expected to. It probably never will. There are some people that do get clients from it, I'm sure. What is your like? What is the role of social media for attorneys? What should they be using it for, and how should they be using it? Yeah. So when we talked about blogging, we talked about how important it is to know your audience. Sure. Well, it's even more important with social media because you're not going to really, I mean, not really have an SEO benefit. And so the sole purpose, in my opinion, needs to be networking. And yep. and I I don't think customer acquisition, at least direct customer acquisition. Uh, should be your strategy. In other words, even if you're a DUI attorney, like I see, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, and I and I see DUI attorneys post, you know, you know, got a DUI, called such and such, su such and such phone number, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, I get it, you know, I yeah, a for effort, but but who like like let's let's play out that scenario, right? What do you you just gotten pulled over from a DUI, and you go to Twitter and you look at your feed, and right. you happen to be following a DUI attorney, and there's his number. <laughs> Like this scenario is not going to play out, but but we all know, like we all, like I'm sure you're you're involved in networking events where you go to dinners on a you know bi-monthly basis where there's only one bankruptcy attorney in the group, and yes, yes. you know we do all of these things. Well, we got to do the same thing on social media. We got to find all the people who are in our network who we can interface with. Um, because that gives them one more touch point, right? It's like the newsletter. It's the, hey, I just want to stay relevant to you without having to send you a Christmas card, though I'll, I will do that as well. But all these ways that we can be engaged so that I'm in front of you as much as possible. So when it is time for you to refer business, you're going to say, oh, hey, I, I, I follow Daniel on Twitter. He's been putting out some good stuff, and you know we interact there. Um, I'm going to send this over to him. Right. That's essentially, I mean, that that's, so when I first started tweeting, when I first started on Facebook and everything else, I had the completely wrong take on it, just from my own practical experience. And I thought, all right, another avenue to get clients. And it was a disaster, right? So I wasn't even speaking in my own voice. I would speak in this sort of professional <laughs> voice of a lawyer on, and it just sounded so completely crap. And then at some, at some point I said, well, this, this isn't working. This is kind of silly. 
um, and began sort of bringing through contrarian viewpoints on a variety of things, legal marketing, whatever, and started meeting people. And, you know, a few of them have, have literally become my mentors. Um, and, and to your point, it's, it's been tremendous in terms of opportunities to meet other people, to hear other voices. And we've been able to send each other business, um, but it's not a direct sort of business opportunity. In other words, you know, if I if something happens in Florida for, to an attorney I know, let's say they, they get into trouble, um, I know a, a specific attorney to refer them to or a criminal defense attorney to uh, refer them to. If there's a First Amendment issue in California, I know someone to refer them to because of Twitter. Um, and once I started looking at it from that standpoint as opposed to money, 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 it changed the entire ballgame for me for the better. And I, I use it every single day. I'm on Twitter all day. Um, and I think that's super important. The, the point that you bring up for attorneys to know is that you should be using this as a way to be part of a conversation versus uh, as a way to acquire anything because yes. the first part's very easy to do. Again, you're not asking anything for anyone, um, asking anyone for anything, I should say. Uh, the, the flip side is that you're constantly promoting and, and you sound like, like a creep. So, you know, I yeah. echo exactly what you say. But, but let, me, let me piggyback on that. So yep. what I like to say is that is that uh, tweeting is, is, is a public text message, yes. right? And so as soon as we're done with this interview, I am not going to send you an email saying, thanks for doing this. Right. I am going to send you a tweet yep. that everyone can read that says, love doing the interview today um, on Daniel's show. Uh, can't wait to hear it. Because that's because I, you know, hey, it's it's self promotion for me. It's promotion for you, but it's also just it's a much more interesting way for us to be a part of this this ongoing legal network, um, and it allows people to understand what we're doing. And and yes, you know what, the rainmakers of the world, the guys that are in the center of every meeting, the guys that that are a little bit annoying, also are the guys that they get a lot of business, yep. right? Yep. Because they're everywhere all the time. And so I know that I annoy some people with with what I do across all social media platforms, right? right and right. and I just have to accept that. You know, I'm I'm the real estate dad with the big picture on the side of the car that says call Preston, here's the phone number. And I just accept that lot in life. You own it. You yeah, own I'm, it. Gonna, I'm gonna be that guy because I gotta put food on the table and this is this is how I do it. Yeah. And I appreciate it. Preston, this has been uh, this has been absolutely amazing. And I I, I, I genuinely am not just saying that I, I had a great time talking with you today. Tell everyone how they can reach you. Tell them about Law Insider. Tell them about how they can email you or tweet at you, anything. Yeah, so uh, real easy. I appreciate that. Um, it's at Law Insider on Twitter, so very easy. The blog is, this is a little bit confusing. The blog is thelawinsider.com. The contract database is lawinsider.com. Don't ask. I got one before the other and, and, <laughs> and ended up with both of them. So um, cool. uh, Preston, Preston at lawinsider.com. Is how you can reach me and uh, and Daniel. This has been outstanding. I appreciate it, Preston. I appreciate it, my man. Thank you so much again for coming on. All right, take care. Take care.